0: JogCast, not yet available in space, with Liz Guzman, Stuart Harper, Indy LeClerc, Ian Morrison, Christina Smith, and Chris Wallace. The JogCast, March 2013 edition. Hello and welcome to The JogCast. I'm Christina and joining me in the studio today are Indy and Chris. Hello guys.
1: Hello.
0: In the show this time, we talk to Dr Geronimo Bernard-Salas about circumstellar and interstellar fullerenes. We find out what you can see in the night sky this month, and we round up some odds and ends from the world of astronomy. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Stuart Harper.
2: This month in the news, a star's final farewell, black holes records, and a new notch in the Van Allen belt. As the largest stars start to approach the end of their lives, they will run out of hydrogen in their cores required for nuclear fusion. This results in a drop in the amount of energy which is pushing on the star's outer layers. The star is then constricted as gravity pulls the star in on itself, which acts to heat up the core and allow the fusion of heavier elements to begin, resulting in a new outflow of energy which stalls the collapsing effects of gravity. However, once a star begins to fuse elements as heavy as iron, the amount of energy given out is less than what is put in. This results in a solid core within the star which contributes nothing to the fight against gravity, and itself is held up, not from fusion processes, but the degeneracy pressure which arises between tightly packed electrons. When this happens, the star is in its final death throes. The outer layers are no longer supported, and begin to rapidly fall onto the core itself, which grows in mass until the electron pressure supporting it fails, and the core collapses. At this point the core will become a sphere of tightly bound neutrons that is so dense that the unfolding outer layers of the star bounce back. This causes a shock wave which drives through the entire remainder of the star and for a short time produces such tremendous amounts of energy that the explosion will outshine all the other light from all the other stars in its host galaxy. This is known as a core collapse supernova. Though the story of the end of a star's life is generally understood, we are still missing the critical information about how a star is behaving just before going supernova. The reason for this is part theory in that we do not exactly know how changes within the core of the star will manifest themselves on the surface, and the other is observational, because we have never actually observed a star just before it goes supernova. Fortunately, the latter problem has been partially resolved with the recent work from an international group of scientists who happened to observe a star just over a month before it went supernova in 2010. The team observed the progenitor star undergoing a huge mass ejection from its surface, a super solar flare, which contained as much material as six Jupiters. A violent outburst such as this is predicted by the wave-driven outburst model, which says that for some stars, as they begin the process of fusing elements heavier than carbon, will have a short period where it produces an excess of energy. This drives both irregular convective currents and a series of powerful waves through the star, which results in a large amount of material unbinding itself from the star's surface in all directions. The team hope that the observations of the supernova SN 2010MC and its progenitor star will help provide that causal link between what is happening to a star before it goes supernova up to the point when it finally explodes. Of course, this is just a single observation of one particular type of star, and there is no way of knowing just yet whether or not the other theories for what should happen before a supernova occurs are more prominent throughout the universe. The galaxy NGC 1365 contains in its centre one of the most powerful phenomena in the universe, an active galactic nucleus, or AGN. The AGN in NGC-1365 is the result of its 2 million solar mass black hole gorging on the plentiful supplies of gas and dust that surrounds the black hole, forming a bright luminous disk of infalling material and a huge jet spewing any leftovers into intergalactic space. What makes the study of AGN important though, is that they are a way of studying the supermassive black holes within galaxies. And it is from these supermassive black holes we think the seeds of the first galaxies are formed. In this way, supermassive black holes can be thought of as a fossil record of a galaxy as the black hole's properties relate to all the major past events through which its host galaxy underwent. One interesting property of these black holes, which astronomers have been wanting to study, is their rate of spin. A black hole which is spinning slowly tells us that during its early formation it fed upon the slowly moving gas and dust which was within its immediate surroundings. But a black hole that spins rapidly indicates that at some point in the past, dramatic events such as galaxies colliding must have occurred. Observing the rate at which a black hole spins requires detecting the x-rays being emitted by the material close to the black hole's event horizon. The XMM-Newton satellite had measured the low-energy x-rays being emitted from the supermassive black hole in NGC-1365 in the past and deduced that the black hole could be spinning extremely fast, almost as fast as Einstein's theory of relativity would allow. However, the result was contentious as some astronomers pointed out that the thick layers of dust which surround the black hole could be distorting the x-rays in a way similar to what may be expected from a spinning black hole. Fortunately, though, a second follow-up experiment, NASA's Nuclear Spectroscopic Telescope Array, Newstar, satellite, made measurements of the high-energy X-ray emissions. By combining both data from XMM-Newton and Newstar, astronomers were able to confirm that, in fact, the supermassive black hole in NGC-1365 is rotating rapidly, and that at some point in the galaxy's distant past, it must have collided with another galaxy. And finally... About 55 years ago, James Van Allen discovered two regions of charged particles that wrapped around the Earth from pole to pole, a few thousand kilometres above the surface. The two regions were named in honour of their discoverer, the Van Allen Belts. The two belts are formed when charged particles, such as protons and electrons, are spewed out from the Sun as solar winds and become trapped within the folds of the Earth's magnetic field. Although considered a well-understood phenomena, it is important that the belts can be modelled accurately, as the outer belt is made up of electrons that can expand and shrink on timescales of less than a few days, and is very sensitive to the effects of the changing solar wind. The inner belt is made up of protons that can change too, but changes on larger timescales of older years or decades. Understanding how the belts may change is important because they may pose a danger to communication and GPS satellites, which are critical to modern life. When NASA launched the two Van Allen probes to study the belts late in 2012, it was expected that no major science would be found, but instead just an increased understanding of how the Van Allen belts behave. However, for one month from September the 2nd, 2012, they observed the formation of an entirely new belt of high-energy electrons, which coincided with a major shock wave in the interplanetary magnetic field, caused by a sudden spike in solar activity. What surprised astronomers most, though, was that the new belt remained remarkably stable until its disappearance in early October. Yet at the same time, it responded immediately to any changes in the solar wind. These observations of the Van Allen belts have brought about a new understanding of how the Earth's magnetic field interacts with the Sun, and its surrounding environment that was completely unpredicted by theoretical models. It is at these moments when observations lead to theory that the most exciting new science can occur, and it is a good lesson in why you should never take even the most understood phenomena in the universe for granted.
3: Thanks for that, Stuart. Next, we have Liz talking to Dr. Geronimo Bernard-Salas about circumstellar and interstellar fullerenes. Hi
4: everyone, this is Liz. I'm here with Geronimo Bernard Salas. He's from the Astrophysics Institute of Space in Paris. Um, he gave the talk, the colloquium, this week in Jordan Bank, and he, his talk was about circumstellar and interstellar fullerens. Thank you for being with us in the podcast, Geronimo. My pleasure. Thanks. Um, so, okay, so let's start from the beginning. Tell us a, lo- a little bit about fullerens. What, what are they, and what, how, how did you observe them, or what, what happened?
5: Well fullerens is um basically is a large molecule made of carbon in the in the form of a ball, basically. It's any molecule in the shape of a hollow structure, so like a sphere or ellipsoid. And um the most popular one is actually the one that has sixty carbon atoms, mm-hmm. which has the exact shape of a s- typical soccer ball. So it has mm-hmm. twelve pentagons and twenty exons, <clears throat> and you put a carbon molecule in the in the junctures, and you have a fuller uh, C sixty, basically. Okay. A buckyball is called.
4: Yeah. Okay.
5: And uh, well, they were basically predicted. Uh, to be seen in, in space, they were first discovered in the laboratory experiments here on Earth that uh, were aiming to understand the formation of carbon dust in the in the in carbon stars, basically, and. Um, they, they discovered all these fullerenes, and these fullerenes are very sturdy, so it was predicted that they could survive the harsh condition of the interstellar medium, and therefore they could be observed in space. Mm-hmm. And there were, however, many searches for them, but they they were unsuccessful. So it took 25 years, and we finally discovered it in basically a giant planetary nebula, which is basically is the last phase of evolution of a star like the Sun, basically, and we mm-hmm. have discovered them there.
4: Right. So about these fullerenes, do they have a Applications. I mean, can you use them for anything here on Earth?
5: Well, yes. That's why they have attracted so much attention, actually, yeah. its fullerensis, because they have many, many applications. They have remarkable both physical and chemical properties and with many technological applications. For instance, in the field of um, nanotechnology, they are important because they reach superconductivity around 18 Kelvin, which is rather high, so that's yeah. good. Um they also, material science, are important because of their conductivity, um, you know, basically to replace the silicon market, right? Okay. Uh, all these computers and stuff like uh, silicon is relatively, let's say, uh, expensive and heavy. Mm-hmm. So, of course, other options is to use Polymer, so some plastic basically which is light and cheap right yeah. to produce and you just include some organic material right to 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 promote electro transfer that's it right. and of course use fullerens nanotubes uh, so they are very important for that and they have even been used here uh, for medicine basically for target drug delivery they can basically attach some chemicals to fullerenes that they can go to certain parts of your body (laughs) and be released there so they've been apparently they've been even been used for treating uh, cancer and melanoma wow and um, even and even these molecules are very very sturdy very resistant and there have been experiments where they can they call it a Bucky bottle so okay. you have the sphere, and they can open it, and they can, for instance, include a molecule of water in it and close it. Oh, and, wow. you know, like that, you have a molecule of water inside the Fullerens, which can be delivered in other parts, you know, of wherever, which is interesting because this, basically, Fullerens is protecting this, yeah. this water molecule there.
4: Wow, that's that's really interesting. So you mentioned circumstellar and interstellar. So these <coughs> Fullerens have been observed in different objects.
5: That's correct. So we first discovered it, in the, as I say in these last phases of stellar evolution, of mm-hmm. stars like the Sun. But uh, following our discovery, now uh, Fullerons have been discovering many, many other environments. So also, of course, stellar like uh, post-AGV phase or AUV phases, but also uh, interstellars, as you say, like uh, reflection nebula or star-forming regions, for instance, uh, even in stars and also in the in young stellar objects, basically stars that just beam form, which okay. is very interesting, right? It could mean that you can deliver also fullerens to planetary systems, for instance.
4: Yeah, which is... pretty amazing. There are bookie balls everywhere there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone is playing football. Um, So so did you, about like formation of the Fullerons, do you need them to be like a very dense environment or can it be, I mean, because all these regions tend to be pretty dense at some points or... Or they because well actually the interstellar medium is quite not very dense I guess.
5: Exactly. So basically, there have been many formation mechanisms that have been proposed, or well, or how you can form them also here on Earth. Mm -hmm. But we have shown that many of these do not um, work in space, actually, for several reasons. For instance, where uh, they were discovered. here on Earth, it was laboratory experiments in hydrogen-poor environments. Okay. Now, in space, we have a lot of hydrogen. Yeah. <laughs> so, we... you know, even though, of course, you can form them like that, in space, you, you we need some other... Uh, mechanism to think of. It. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can form then they say, with high temperature, also formation like uh, combustion, because then uh, the problem is that uh, if you attach uh, hydrogen to the edges, then you don't form fullerens, you form pH, something else, a different molecule. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, it seems that in these laboratory experiments either you form one or the other, Fullerens or these but not both. And in space, we observe both. Right. <laughs> then there is experiments laboratory where you can form them by a uh, PAs and graphene, uh, but uh, this is difficult because you you can do it in, here on Earth, but you need specific conditions. You need to start from a molecule of about say 70 carbon atoms, things like this. But in a space, it's very difficult to tune all these parameters, right? Of so we see that these ones do not really work, also and also because of time constraints. Okay. For example, the one where you require a high temperature to form them. Uh, To get those temperatures in the interstellar medium, you might need a shock gas, for instance, but uh, the post-density shock is very low. So you require a lot of time to form them, more than the lifetime of these objects. So we need the different mechanisms. Um, And, uh, well, there's another one that is called photochemical processing of hacks. But basically it's a combination, it's a mixture of many different materials, materials, uh, which, like, you have hexagonal rings, like uh, you would, you know, like benzene rings, they're uh-huh. called, and also carbon chains, and this could be curled up, and this could be a viable mechanism, we find, but clearly we need, it needs more work.
4: So, for the evolution of these molecules, is it like you form them in these regions, or do you think they, they been shielded, and then they, I don't know, like, you form them in a young stellar object, and then in these regions around, it, it travels through the ISM, and then it goes to the... Planetary Nebula or something? It's, I
5: would say it's, this is an interesting question, but maybe it's the other way around. We know that in the last phases, like a planetary nebulae, in the last phases of evolution of the stars from the AGV to the planetary nebulae, we know that it's a very you have a very rich and very complex chemistry. You form a lot of molecules, many of them. And this is where we found the fullerens and we have found evidence of fullerens being formed there in many objects. So mm-hmm. clearly they are formed there. Okay. Now, we have also found find them in the interstellar medium or in young stellar objects they are there as well they have been found so the idea is okay do we form them in this planetary nebula, uh well in this AGB planetary nebula phase and then they survive and then we see them in the interstellar medium
4: yeah.
5: that will be one or also in, in, in young stellar objects or you somehow destroy them because even though they are very stable they are very sturdy you could imagine that you know the, the Interstellar medium is a harsh environment, right? Yeah. So you get hit by cosmic rays, all kind of things. Mm-hmm. So eventually you might be able to destroy them. This is something that we need to calculate, actually, how long they survive. Right. If you destroy them, that means that the fullerens that are seen in this interstellar medium, in, the, in these stars, young stellar objects, they, have, they must have been repro- uh, reformed somehow. Yeah. Okay. And this might require different conditions. Uh, so we don't know the answer to that yet, but clearly it's uh, something very important. Need yeah, to look at
4: that's really interesting um i I was thinking while you were talking, have they been observing supernova remnants, or no no, no, no. Okay.
5: they haven't been observed yet there no
4: do you expect them to be there or
5: it's it was expected to be seen in the carbon rich uh, grain condensation sequence known to occur in some kind of supernova type two, and uh, but they have not yet uh, been observed no.
4: yeah, okay. So yeah, the other the other important thing is is how to observe them, right? Like you observe them in, in the infrared. Is yes, that, that's correct. What was the telescope that you were using?
5: We're using the Spitzer Space Telescope. Okay. Um, and we use the infrared spectrograph in that uh, telescope to observe them, because uh, fullerins they have a lot of for instance the C60 which is the most stable molecule the one we mm-hmm. see more uh, is, um, they have many vibrational modes many of them but because they are so symmetric right uh, even if you move them you, they don't change a lot the dipole moment so so basically they only have four infrared bands and they're all in the infrared so you need the infrared telescope to observe them
4: okay. is the only wavelength that you could well
5: that's say the, there might be electronic bands that could be expected in the in the for instance in the optical also of ionized uh, fullerens for instance so okay. they, there are other places we could look at as well okay. in the optical
4: so, and what are the excitation processes then? Is it just rotation and vibration, and you get the photons that come out, or do you do you have to hit them with like I don't know fluorescence or?
5: So there are several excitation mechanisms that have been proposed, and uh, I can already tell you that there is still no not clear consensus on which one okay. <laughs> prevails. <laughs> uh, we we're studying this. One is basically thermal excitation, the other is uh, fluorescence. Um, it's um, it's difficult, actually, to tell, simply because even though these two processes um, predict different band intensities, right? Uh, for mm-hmm. instance, the fullerene in bands, the C60, they have four infrared bands. So you could play, basically, with the relative intensity of these bands to mm-hmm. see what this one model predicts, what the other predicts. Now, unfortunately... It, in reality, uh, the problem we have is that many of these bands, you have fullerens but you have also other materials, some of them are blended, so it's difficult to just isolate them yeah. to get, you know, the absolute That's relative specific, strength. Yeah. Also, there seems to be some issues with the laboratory mex- measurements because different groups uh, give also different relative strengths of the bands. Okay. So that makes it a bit difficult. Yeah. Um on the other hand we seem to have found that uh, in the first object where we found it, it is kind of extended we can get some special distribution we can know a bit where the fullerens are emitting
6: okay. and we
5: find them like 8000 um, astronomical units from the the star that is ionizing them and this uh, seems to be uh, basically is that they are far away so it's difficult to understand the, them in terms of thermal excitation now because if they are thermal, what we were proposing is that maybe they need to be in contact, because the temperature we measure is a bit colder, you need Mm -hmm. to they should be in contact with some colder material, we propose maybe they are with carbonaceous grains, that they must be abundant, those are in radiative equilibrium with the central star so basically their temperature is determined by the distance to the central star now, that far out we would expect them to be much colder than what we measure, Okay. so that seems to go against basically thermal excitation, so we might be now be uh, favoring the fluorescence.
4: And the, the last question I wanted to ask you, well, have they been discovered in extragalactic sources and do you think we should look for them?
5: Well, we, we should definitely look for them. <laughs> um, They have been discovered in more planetary nebulae in the large uh, Magellanic Cloud and the small Magellanic Cloud. So there Mm -hmm. is already stragalactic detections of these objects. What will be very interesting, of course, is if you can detect them. When you look at galaxies far away, all the information is mixed, right? Uh, All this is integrated in one. You don't have special information. So they might get lost, you know, their emission with the emission of others. Parts of the galaxy or there, but it will be very interesting if they would be seen there, because that will mean they are very abundant. And now uh, that said, uh, new facilities, right? Uh, they are having s- enhanced spatial distribution and also improved sensitivities, right? So we are going to be able to prove even weaker things and farther away. So, mm-hmm. uh, like with the advent of the James Webb Space Telescope in a few years' times, in five years' times, it's going to be something very interesting to look for, actually.
4: Okay, well, thank you very much for the interview.
5: Thank you for
0: having me.
4: Thank you. Bye. Thanks for that, Liz.
0: Now we get to the part of the show where we fit in everything else that we want to talk about. It's the odds and ends. So, first up, um, I'm going to talk about a satellite that has just been launched into orbit called Strand1, which is the Surrey Training Research and Satellite Demonstrator. And kind of the cool thing about this satellite is that it incorporates a mobile phone, <laughs> This mobile phone isn't just there for show. It's being used to test commercial products in space, and it's also being used to control the satellite, or it will be once all these systems have been tested. It'll actually be used to sort of control bits of the satellite and its movement, um, which is really cool. This satellite is actually about 30 centimetres, and it only weighs about three and a half kilos, which is quite cool. It's called a CubeSat. And the phone itself is going to actually run a few different apps, which will do various different things. There, there was a little competition to have an idea for an app that you could run in space and would do something cool. Uh, and so you've got one is measuring the magnitude of the magnetic field, one's sort of showing telemetry data, one is taking images and using it to establish the position of the satellite. And the last one is more a bit of fun, and it's called the Scream in Space app, and it's going to test whether or not In space, anybody can hear you scream by playing videos of people screaming and seeing if they're picked up by the microphone. I don't know how they're going to figure out whether or not they're picking anything up through vibrations in the phone itself. But yeah, so that's kind of cool. And you can submit your own screams to the competition to get played. Awesome. It's not only going to be doing that, it's also testing a few other different new technologies. So it's using the first 3D printed part to be sent up into space and two new propulsion drives. So one is called the pulsed plasma thrusters, going to be used to manoeuvre the satellite. And a new re-entry drive called the WARP drive. What? (laughs) It's called the WARP drive, the Water Alcohol Resisto-Jet Propulsion deorbit Re-entry Velocity Experiment.
3: (laughs) That's one of the most concise acronyms, even by astrophysics standards.
0: I think it's a brilliant acronym.
1: (laughs) It definitely went for that one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And um, that one's actually going to be using a spraying alcohol in order to force it to begin re-entry which is quite cool
3: so so is this phone going to be sort of right in the middle of space like exposed to the elements and 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 everything
0: it's going to be mounted on the plate in in the satellite so it's not going to be it's not going to be in sort of an atmosphere it's not going to be in a heated environment and there are actually safeguards in place to make sure that the battery doesn't get too cold and if if the sensors pick up that the battery and the phone is getting really cold then it's going to trigger a sort of labour intensive job to be run on the phones in order to heat it up so yeah it's going to be exposed because they have brought phones up inside like the ISS but that's in where a pressurized can environment. Survive. Yeah, in an environment where humans can survive, yeah.
3: Okay. That's no that's 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 really clever. Although I reckon they could have probably done this years ago with one of the old Nokia phones because those things were ridiculously durable.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah they so what is is there like a reason to take a phone up or is it just cool?
0: Well, they just it's got a lot of processing power and they just okay. wanted to see what it could do. And I mean, if you can actually control a satellite using a mobile phone, that's pretty cool. I mean, they're relatively cheap for by satellite standards. Yeah. So okay. I mean this whole satellite itself is costing, according to their website, about the same as a, a family car. So All
3: right. that's pretty cheap. Well, for my odd end, you're gonna need a bit more than a phone camera to spot uh, what's just been discovered. Astronomers have uh, discovered what is pretty much believed to be the smallest exoplanet we've ever seen. It's called Kepler-37b, so it's called that because it was discovered by the Kepler Space Telescope, which is um, being used to to search for exoplanets in, in the Milky Way. And its main feature is that it's it's a lot smaller than any planet we've ever discovered outside of our own solar system. It's It's just a little bit larger than our own moon, which, as far as planets go, that's pretty small. So it's it's one of three planets that were discovered orbiting uh, Kepler-37, which is a star about 200 light-years away uh, and a little bit smaller than the Sun. So Kepler monitors over 150,000 stars in the Milky Way just to look at little variations in, in the light that comes from their brightness, which could indicate that a planet has passed in front of it. The thing about small planets and planets smaller than the Earth is that they, they block really small amounts of starlight, so it's quite difficult to detect them. But astronomers were able to to use Kepler to look at Kepler thirty seven, which is which is quite bright and it's quite stable. It hasn't got much, many disturbances or, or fluctuations in the brightness that can sort of get in the way of a of a small planet planetary signal. During their observations, they found a pattern whereby every thirteen days or so, the star uh, the star's brightness went down by really a minute fraction um, two thousandths of a percent. So that's like two parts in a hundred thousand. But that co- that indicated that Something that the little planet was was passing across the star's face and, and reducing the brightness. Kepler thirty seven b is uh is about eighty percent of the size of Mercury and and only thirty percent the size of Earth. So it is, it is really small and it's orbiting its its uh, its star extremely close. Uh, it's it's one tenth the distance between the Earth and the Sun. So that's well inside uh, even Mercury's Mercury's orbit. So this means that it's extremely hot and it's completely barren. It's just this desolate um, rocky well there wouldn't be any form of liquid or anything on it and in fact all three of the planets that were that were seen orbit much closer to their star than any of, of our planets orbit the, the sun and in fact it's it, it seems like planetary systems tend to exhibit this sort of structure a lot more than the structure of our solar system so in fact we would be sort of the exception rather than the rule in, in, in that our planets orbit quite far away from our star and and that enables things like the Goldilocks zone where where we can have life on our on our planet earth so the, the one difficulty involved with this observation is that um, Kepler is the only telescope that we can use to to, to pick up these kinds of, of planets so it's very easy to sort of get a false positive or or, or see something that actually isn't there because there's no way of confirming it through a different observation. But the astronomers use computer models and, um, and a statistical analysis to try and, and, and see the probability of, of picking up a false positive. And they're confident that um, this tiny planet is in fact a planet to within about 99.95%. Pretty
0: good. And it's amazing that they can detect something that small. And, I mean, I can't imagine... A planet going around a star in 13 days.
1: It must play like quite a lot of constraints on how planets are formed. If people didn't think that planets would be formed this close, but now we're seeing loads of them that are.
3: No, it's it's definitely um, um, changing our our conceptions about how solar systems and planetary systems came about, and seeing all these systems with planets that are extremely close to the stars has as forced astronomers to rethink uh, rethink their their models. Um, and their conceptions of stellar systems
1: yeah my ultimate ends is quite a cool thing where they've uh, well in, over the last couple of years they discovered two more moons around Pluto so it takes the total to the, the five now and they had a problem in that they needed to they now need to name them so they put a poll out and around around 400,000 people voted and the names chose that they chose were Vulcan and uh, Cyberus which is pretty cool and no, no surprise the, the Name Vulcan was suggested by William Shatner.
0: Oh, you've got to have some geeky names for some moons if you can. Yeah, it's
1: brilliant. Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, they've managed to find these two things with uh, the Hubble Space Telescope, and yeah, it's quite cool that they put it out to the public to suggest the names. And now they just need to kind of confirm it with the International Astronomical Union.
3: Yeah, and I also heard that. Um, William Shatner, who plays who plays uh, Captain Kirk in Star Trek, and also um, Leonard Nimoy, who plays Spock, who's from Vulcan. Um, for those of you who aren't Star Trek fans out there, I think there are a few. And I think the planet Romulus, which is also involved in the uh, in, in the Star Trek series, um, was quite high up in the vote. Although the problem with that is that apparently there's already um, an astronomical body called Romulus, and so you can't name the same thing twice.
0: Mm. That's a shame. It would have been nice to have had both of them named in a suitably geeky fashion.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Or next, Planet enterpriser.
1: (laughs) Now to someone who you hope will live long and prosper, here's Ian Morrison with the Northern Night Sky.
6: The Night Sky for March 2013. Well, what about the stars to start with? That lovely region of sky with the constellations Orion Taurus, Gemini and Auriga is now moving over towards the west as the sun sets. So they're gradually going to move out of view. If you come leftwards from Gemini towards Leo the Lion with its bright star Regulus it's a fairly blank part of the sky. You're crossing the constellation of Cancer. It actually contains... A lovely open cluster, a wide one, it's called M44, the beehive cluster. A lovely thing to observe with binoculars. Below that, in fact, is one bright star, Procyon, the brightest star in Canis Minor. And then we have the sickle of Leo the lion, with Regulus making sort of the four paws. It's like a, a lion on its haunches. It actually looks a bit like the real thing. The lion's in Trafalgar Square, for example. There's quite a number of nice galaxies in Leo, just underneath the belly, really. And if you've got a Dark night, 10 by 50 binoculars or a small telescope, if you just sweep westwards from Regulus, you may well pick them up. There's a group of three, M105, M96 and M95, then further over, M66 and M65. Between the tail... Of Leo, I think it's Denebola, and towards a bright star you'll see rising over in the east, which is Arcturus in Bootes. There's a fairly faint part of the heavens, the northern part of the constellation of Virgo and the constellation of Coma Berenices. It's a fairly faint part of the sky, but in fact it's called the realm of the galaxies, because in that direction we're looking towards the centre. ...of a giant cluster called the Virgo Cluster. And there are quite a number of Messier galaxies in that particular region. Again, very dark night, good binoculars or a small telescope will pick many of them up. If you look upwards above Leo, you'll actually come to Ursa Major, the great bear... ...with, of course, the plough called the Big Dipper by the Americans... ...which actually relates to the ladle used by the farmer's wife to ladle out the soup at lunchtime for the farmhands. But we call it the plough. Again, with binoculars, have a look at the middle star of the three making up the handle, Alcor and Mizar. Mizar is quite bright. Alcor is less bright. Even with your eyes, you may see it's a double system. But if you look with a small telescope, you'll see that Mizar is itself a double star. And there's a fourth rather pretty little reddish star, in the field of view of a small telescope. Nice thing to look at. Well, what about the planets this month? Well, Jupiter, we've been talking about quite a bit in the last couple of months, It's in the constellation of Taurus. It's actually now moving somewhat westwards. It starts about five degrees to the upper right of Aldebaran, which is the star, the eye of the bull, in front of the Hyades cluster, although not part of it. It's moving over to the east, so by the end of the month, it's actually above Aldebaran. It's about five degrees away. Now, because it's now moving away from the Earth, the angular diameter is actually reducing from about 39 to 36 arc seconds during the month. But that's still quite big enough to show lots of detail with a small telescope. You've got bright zones and darker bands crossing the disk, and up to four Galilean moons visible as they weave their way around the giant planet. Well, as Jupiter wanes from our view, perhaps, so Saturn gets better. Although, sadly, it's relatively low in the ecliptic, so it never actually rises that high in the sky, up to about an elevation of 25 degrees. At the beginning of March, it rises at 11.30. And so transits, that's due south, before dawn, at about 04.30 UT. By month's end, it's actually rising sooner, of course, by about 21.40, and trans is about 0200 UT. So towards the end of March, we will have a chance of looking at it in detail late in the evening. As of course, it's getting nearer to us, or should I say we're getting nearer to it because it doesn't move very quickly in the sky, its magnitude is increasing from plus 0.4 to plus 0.3 magnitudes. Lower plus numbers mean brighter. The angular size conversely is increasing from about 18 to 18.6 arcseconds. And the good news is, as I've said before, is that the rings are now opening out. They have been out to about 19 degrees to the line of sight, although in fact this month they actually fractionally drop to about 18.6 arc seconds. We're observing much of the planet's southern hemisphere with the northern hemisphere, quite a bit of it hidden by the ring system. If you've got a small scope, you have a chance of spotting Cassini's division that lies between the A and the B rings. Mercury. Well, it reaches what is called greatest western elongation, and that's when it's furthest from the southern angle towards the west on the 31st, and that implies we see it before dawn. However, this is not what is called a good apparition, as the ecliptic at dawn this time of year makes a very shallow angle to the horizon. So as a result, Mercury will be very low above the horizon in the east-southeast as dawn breaks. The elevation never gets that high. You'll almost certainly need binoculars to see it, but please do not use them after the sun has risen. You must take very great care of your eyes. Now, Mars, it's been hanging around low in the west for months now. As it's been moving eastwards, it sort of continues to stay. It's in Aquarius. It could be seen at an elevation of just three degrees in the southwest, about forty-five minutes after sunset at the beginning of March. But I think, to be honest, by the end of the month, it really will be lost in the sun's glare. Again, you'll need to have binoculars to spot it. Don't use them until the sun has set. Now, there's an interesting thing that happens on the twenty-second of March, but it's perhaps unlikely we'll have a chance to see it. Given an exceedingly low western horizon. You might just possibly spot Mars, have a magnitude of 1.2, but it's going to be within 39 arc seconds of the planet Uranus. Now, sadly, that will just be at magnitude 6, so it will almost certainly not be visible. However, I have a feeling that if you get a reasonably high power, a telescope which actually makes the background skylight reduce in brightness, you might just have a chance of picking it up. But of course, the sky is going to be very good, and it's obviously got to be where you can see, almost down to a sea horizon. Well, finally, Venus, well, we haven't seen it for a little bit, it reaches superior conjunction on March the 28th, and that's on the far side of the Sun, so will not be visible at all this month. Well, what about some highlights? We don't actually have very many, but one of them could be quite good. Between about March the 9th and the 20th, just after sunset, we have a chance to spot what may have been the brightest comet we've seen for some time. It's called Comet panstars. It was discovered some two years ago when it lay between the orbits of Saturn and Jupiter, having a brightness of just 19th magnitude. And the name comes from the telescope that observed it. It's called the Panoramic Survey Telescope and Rapid Response System, PANSTARS for short. Now, it reaches what is called perihelion when it's closest to the Sun on March the 10th, and will be just 0.3 AU away from the Sun, within the orbit of Mercury. At our northern latitudes in the UK, it's likely to be at its best between about March the 8th to 20th with the 12th to 17th probably optimum. Again you've got to get yourself to a point where you have a very good low west and northwestern horizon. The azimuth at which you'll see it is gradually moving northwards. It starts at about azimuth 260 just south of west on the 9th, 270 due west on the 13th, eighty on the 18th, and azimuth 310 on the 28th. If it's clear, there'll be a wonderful imaging opportunity on the 12th, when it should lie just above a thin crescent moon. Let's hope it's a clear night for that. In fact, there's going to be another great imaging opportunity next month, on April the 4th, when, with a similar magnitude, it passes very close to M31, the Andromeda Galaxy. That again could make a lovely photograph. I'm quite sure someone will take it. We'll see them in the magazines before too long. Just before I finish, I, I sometimes mention a book that I think it might be worth you buying. And in the past, I've talked about the book called Turn Left at Orion, which is a lovely description of many of the beautiful objects you can see with binoculars or a small telescope. I've just got, at a ridiculously low price from Amazon, the Philips Night Sky Atlas. In fact, written by a friend of mine called Robin Skaggle, which is not why I'm recommending it. But it has several very good features. First of all, it has a very nice four-quadrant lunar map, a great help for finding your way around the moon. And then it has a set of star charts produced by Will Tyrion. He's the top celestial cartographer at the present time. And opposite each of these star charts is a sort of a photorealistic image of what the sky might look like to your eyes. I think that's a very, very nice feature. There are a lot of hints and tips about observing the moon, planets and the stars. And then there's a series of constellation sections, a little map of each constellation and pictures of some of the interesting objects within it. It cost me all of £9.99 and uh, it's a very worthwhile buy. Well, best of luck, and I do hope you have a chance to see Comet pan Thanks
0: for that, Ian. Now John Phil tells us what you can see in the southern night sky.
6: Kia ora,
7: and welcome to the March night sky from Carter Observatory. March sees our night skies quickly becoming longer, and this means the opportunity for more observing. Early in March, two bright comets should be visible in the southwest after sunset. Comets Lemon F6 and pan stars L4 may be bright enough to be seen with the unaided eye which should be easily found in binoculars. And in the northeast, our summer constellations of Taurus, Orion and Gemini can be found. They are moving towards the western horizon a little more each night. Low in the northwest are the Pleiades. This pretty cluster of stars is known to many cultures and has a plethora of names. To Mari they are Matariki, the little eyes, and are important in the Māori annual calendar. Binoculars and small telescopes will reveal many more stars in this cluster. Following the Pleiades is the V-shaped head of Taurus. Sitting between the two is Jupiter, the largest planet in our solar system. Jupiter is moving further away from the Earth and now appears fainter in our sky compared to last December when it was at opposition. The brightest star in the V of Taurus is called Aldebaran, coming from the Arabic, for the follower, and marks one of the bull's eyes. This orange star is the 13th brightest star in our night sky, shining at a magnitude of 0.87. The orange hue of Aldebaran means that the star has a cooler surface temperature than our star of the Sun. It is a red giant star in the final stages of its stellar evolution. The faintest stars of the V of the bull's head are formed by the more distant Hyades star cluster. In Greek mythology, they are the half-sisters of the Pleiades. This cluster is estimated to be about 150 light-years away and contains over 100 stars that are brighter than ninth magnitude. This cluster includes a number of double or multiple stars. Almost due north in the evening sky is the zodiac constellation of Cancer the Crab which appears as four stars with a haze at the center. Using binoculars, this haze is revealed as a cluster of stars known as the Beehive Cluster. Although this cluster is about 500 to 600 light-years away, it covers an area of the sky about three times the size of the full moon as viewed in our sky. Following the crab across the sky and rising at sunset is the large constellation of Leo the Lion. Leo is one of the 12 zodiac constellations, and this constellation dates back to the time of the Persians. It later became associated with the Legion of Hercules, and the killing of this lion was the first of its twelve tasks. The brightest star in Leo, Regulus, shines at magnitude 1.4, and is the 22nd brightest star in the night sky. Regulus is a blue-white star and has a magnitude 7.6 red companion that is visible in binoculars or small telescopes. Rising up in the eastern sky before midnight is Saturn, sitting in the constellation of Libra. The Milky Way runs from north to south in our evening sky and is at its brightest near to our southern horizon. To many cultures, the Milky Way is seen as a path or a river across the night sky. To Maori and Aotearoa is Te Ikaroa, the long fish, and it is along this path that Tom Rarity sailed across the sky as he placed the stars into the heavens. The mottled appearance of the Milky Way comes from the dark clouds of interstellar material that blocks the light on the more distant stars. Sitting in the southern part of the Milky Way is Crux commonly called the Southern Cross, and nearby are the Pointer Stars. Between Crux and Canis Major sits the broken-up remains of the great ship Argo. Until 1752, it was the largest constellation that was broken up into three parts, Carina the Keel, Vila the Sails, and Pupus the Poop Deck. Carina has a great number of objects to spot with the naked eye. The brightest star in Carina is Canopus, the second brightest star in our night sky, shining at magnitude minus 0.72. The current distant estimate is 310 light-years. This makes Canopus the brightest star within 700 light-years of our solar system. The great ship Argo was associated with the legend of Jason the Argonauts. The ship carried the crew on their quest to find the Golden Fleece. The ship rides along the Milky Way with its hull carrying at the keel, pointing towards the South Celestial Pole. This is the point that is overhead at Earth's southern pole. It is around this point that all the stars in our southern sky rotate. The clouds of Magellan are high in the southern sky near to Echina and can be easily seen with unaided eye on a dark, moonless night. These are two small galaxies about 160 and 200,000 light years away. March 20th marks the autumnal equinox here in the southern hemisphere. This marks the time halfway between our summer and winter solstices. The sun rises due east and sets due west, and our day and night hours are similar in length. From this time and until the time of the winter solstice, our nighttime hours will continue to grow longer as our daytime hours shorten. Sitting in the morning twilight is Mercury making its best appearance for the year. By the middle of the month, it will rise due east at dawn, looking like a moderately bright orange star. For a telescope, it will look like a tiny crescent moon. Venus and Mars are sitting on the far side of the sun and are invisible to us. We wish all our listeners a happy equinox, and hope the skies remain clear for you all.
3: Thanks for that, John. Now we move on to some of your feedback. Um, first of all, thanks for all of your asking Astronomer questions uh, that we've received uh, by email. That segment of the show wouldn't really be the same without you guys. And um, we've also had an email from uh, Peter Wright, who's the president of Iraq, the European Radio Astronomy Club, um, who tells us that he's just had another feedback from uh, from members who, who think that the JODcast is one of the best things to be found on the Internet. And um, he finds it quite funny that everyone wants to give him this so-called secret tip, and who think everyone thinks that they're the first to discover the Jodcast. Um, and he does to keep up the good work and uh, to give his regards to Ian. So thanks a lot for that email, Peter.
0: And thank you very much to all the uh, all the members who think we are we're such a useful feature, and we we hope to continue being so. Yeah,
3: we aim to please. <laughs>
1: And on Twitter, Blow Brown has got in touch. They say, good show, great explanation on how we derive the amount of dark energy. And thanks for all the retweets and follow Fridays.
0: And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net.
1: On the forum at forum.jodcast.net.
3: On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast.
0: On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast.
1: On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast.
3: On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash Jodcast.
0: And don't forget that you can send us post and the address is on the website. So now all that's left to say is thanks to Geronimo Bernard Salas for the interview. The editors were Christina Smith, Claire Bretherton, Liz Guzman and Mark Perver. The producer was Christina Smith. So until next time, John.